Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we begin a new series, The End. Lead Pastor David Fossil points out that any discussion of the end times will reveal there are lots of extremes about this topic. Today, we're led on an overview of what Scripture has to say about the end times. Listen as Pastor Dave shows us some details the Bible makes us aware of, and along with the details, we get some pointers we can use in applying what we've learned. It's amazing how people are into the end. I mean, on the History Channel and Discovery Channel, it, it's coming up all, all the time. Uh, a lot of people have spouted off concerning the end and have actually tried to predict and give dates and kind of prophesy when the end is going to be. Now, as as church-going Christians, uh, one of the key components that is connected to the end is the second coming of Christ. And so just kind of real quick, kind of combining that uh, together with kind of the end, people have spouted off and given ideas on when that might happen. It started really early. So the first prediction was 70 AD, given by the a group called the Essenes when the Jerusalem was being uh, destroyed and specifically the temple was being destroyed. They predicted that within the next year, 70 AD, the world would end. Uh, Pope Innocent III he predicted the world would end in the year 1284. And he calculated this based upon the fact that uh, 1284 was exactly 666 years. Again, that number is pretty significant in the Bible. 666 years after the birth of Islam. So this, again, remember, this is a time when Islam, Muslims, and Christians were at war. Um, Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation, predicted the world would end in the year 1600. Christopher Columbus predicted the year the world would end in the year 1656. The American prophetess by the name of Johanna Southcott, she was much more specific. She said the world would come to an end on October the 19th, 1814. Uh, she prophesied uh, that she was pregnant with the reincarnated Christ. And he was to be born on October the 19th. And when that happened, the world would come to an end. Far more sophisticated and someone we look up to, John Wesley, the, the who birthed the Methodist Church, he said and taught that the the world would end on, in the year 1836. Harold Camping, you guys familiar with Harold Camping? Harold Camping has made many predictions. He's now is past. Uh, but well, let me just going to give you an idea. He's yeah, he's a. Uh, he kept changing his mind as the dates uh, passed on. Um, uh, Nostradamus predicted the world would come to an end in July of 1999. Um, many of us were familiar. Remember when this happened? Let's put the next slide up there. January the 1st. Remember Y2K? Right? We all went out and got bottled water and canned goods just in case our computers went crashing down. Dozens and dozens of not only religious church folk, but politicians uh, told us that Y2K, January 1st, would be a, uh, you know, the world many believe would come to an end. And then most recently... Uh, you probably saw it in the news, the Mayan calendar predicted and on December the 21st, 2012, the world would come to an end. Now, here, here's the, the point that I'm going to try and make as I start this morning. I could go on and on and, on and literally give you hundreds of predictions uh, by individuals, some kind of wacky and some very respectable of when they thought the world was going to come to an end. I could give you dates of people that are prophesying and predicting in the future of when our world is supposedly supposed to end. Um, if you're just joining us, we are starting a brand new four-week series today called The End, okay? Uh, I guess you could say that this morning is the beginning of the end. I, I know that's kind of kind of corny, but I've been waiting to say that all week. It's on my notes. So, um, we are going to spend four weeks talking about this. Now, I, I got to tell you, um, I, I, I find some balanced people, but I find a lot, a lot of extremes when it comes to this topic. There are some people that are so into this topic. I mean, they love talking about the four horsemen and the mark of the beast and, and the, everything in the book of Revelation. And they are so into it. A little bit too much, in my opinion. Okay. And then there are other people that are like, I don't care. Whatever. I'm going to do my thing. And then whatever happens, whenever it happens, then, then it, I, I'll find out. Right. You should actually, as a follower of Christ, be interested and want to know about this topic. Uh, 
it, it, the fancy word is eschatology. It just means end times. But just let me give you some numbers. 20% of the Bible is dedicated to prophecy. One-fifth. Uh, one out of 30 verses have to do with the end times. So my point is, apparently God has put enough information in here about the end times. He kind of wants you to know about it. At least be able to dialogue about it. Not be tricked by certain individuals when they talk about it. Okay, so we're going to spend four weeks. I had a couple of people tell me, well, let's spend 12 weeks. No, we're not spending 12 weeks on this. I'm going to do four weeks. We're going to cover an overview of what Scripture has to say uh, about the end times. Now, this morning, just to kind of get into the topic, okay, let, let me show you the three key ideas that you need to understand related to the end, end times. The Bible absolutely 100% guarantees Jesus is coming back. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples and his followers, and he's about to ascend into heaven, he says to them, just as you're going to watch me ascend into heaven, you will one day see me come back. It is it, just as important as the virgin birth, just as important as the resurrection of Christ. One of the key tenets of the Christian faith is he's coming back. Absolute guarantee. Now, having said that, the big picture is that we don't know exactly when. We don't know when. Uh, so if anyone tells you, I, I know everything that's going on in the book of Revelation, or even if they're respectable, they go, I know when Jesus is coming back. Anytime anyone gives you a specific prediction, you know they're automatically wrong. The Bible tells us they're automatically wrong. Uh, I, I gave you a reference. You might want to write these references down as well. Matthew 24, 44 tells us, not even Jesus, the son, knows. Only God the Father knows, and uh, uh, he's the only one that knows exactly when this is going to happen. So we don't know exactly when. Having said that, again, the Bible says there are some details you should be aware of. There are some hints. There are some signs in history and within the church and within the world that give us an indication that we're getting closer Okay, now what I want to do today, there are, goodness, 40, 50 of these. Some of them are very complicated and complex. Um, some of them are, are in the Bible, but maybe for us on a Sunday morning, not as interesting uh, to cover. What I'm going to do, if you look on the backside of your study guide, I'm going to cover, what is it, 16 of them. 16 things that I find are not only interesting, but here's what they do. They make you go, hmm. That's what they do. They make you have this idea and thought that this may be closer than we actually think. OK, so I'm going to go through them. Some of them are very subjective. Others of them are very specific and objective and can be measured. So we'll just go through them. And obviously, then we'll land on application at the end. Here's the first one. The Bible says that there will be uh, deception and denial that happens in the end times. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, Matthew 24 is primarily where we're going to be. In it, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and giving them the hints, the signs. And this is one of the first ones he talks about. He says, watch. Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. Now, just to be clear, he's actually speaking about church. He's actually speaking about these kind of gatherings. And, and the guys that speak up here and have the microphone and open their Bibles, he says, make sure that none of those guys ever deceive you. Uh, I've told you this before. Um, I, I don't mind putting the verses for you up on the screen, right? But it makes me nervous when I say, turn in your Bibles too. It makes me nervous when some of you, many of you don't. You know why? Because instinctively you're going, yeah, well, if, if pastor says it, it must be true. That's incredibly dangerous. Now, I'm not going to knowingly tell you anything that's untrue. But this is going to happen for the kind of people that go to church and never open this book and double check the pastor. Does that make sense? Make sure no one deceives you. I don't care how nice they are. I don't care how respectable they seem. Make sure no one deceives you. And he says, in the church, this is a church prophecy. Within the church, at, at, at that time, many will turn away from the faith. Many will stop believing what this book says as true. Now, 
Let me give you a couple statistics. We can't spend a lot of time on any of these, but uh, this might be interesting to you. 53% of Americans, so that's not church people, but 53% of Americans believe if you're a good person, you'll go to heaven. Now, unfortunately, that's not what the Bible says. I'm glad people are good people. But, but the Bible says that the key is, is do you trust in Christ as your personal savior? That's the key, right? Not how good you are on a sliding scale compared to the person next to you. Now, here's the concern. I'm going to give you some, some statistics about the church, okay, about us. Okay, here's this next statistic. 50, uh, 43% of born-again Christians believe that world religions all pretty much teach the same thing. Four out of ten of us believe that the world religions all pretty much teach the same thing. Now, um, let me say this as kindly as I can and as respectfully as I can. Uh, that is incredibly ignorant, and that's deception in its purest form. If you put the world religions side by side, whether you're a Christian or not, and just compare what they say, there's no way, no how they can all be right. There's no way they can all be right. And so now we are beginning to almost see this verse, which is very subjective, be confirmed to us even in the American church. Let me give you another statistic. 57% of evangelicals, that's us. An evangelical is someone who believes this book is actually true and is the word of God. 57% of church-going American evangelicals believe that many religions lead to eternal life. That is deception at its purest form. And I don't know how it's going to work out, but the Bible says that in the end times, this kinds of groups of people, some of them will stop going to church and some of them will continue to go to church, but will choose to just completely ignore what is said in here and they'll believe their own thing. Okay. Now, like I said, this is very subjective. It's hard to measure, but the Bible says when you see it, you'll know what's going on. Okay, that's number one. Number two, let's move on. Number two is there will be an increase of false prophets. What does that mean? Jesus says, for many will come in my name. Many, and he's talking about religious people. He's talking about church people, right? He's talking, many will come in my name, in God's name, claiming I'm the Messiah. I'm kind of God. I'm kind of Jesus, right? I'm the one the Bible talks about. That's me. Many will do that, and they will deceive many. Now, let me give you some of the, the five most famous in the most in recent years. Of course, on the left, you've got Jim Jones. I don't know if you're familiar with the very famous rabbi in New York, David Koresh, uh, Applewhite, Reverend Sung Young Moon. See, there's some of the ones that appear most in, um, uh, on the news. I don't know if you know this, however. Since the beginning of the 1900s, did you know there have been over 1,200 people, 1,200 individuals that have claimed, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah? 1,200. These are the five most famous. So you look at that verse and you go, hmm, this is happening an awful lot, whether we see it in the news or not. The next one, number three, is there will be an increase in military conflict. Jesus said in verse six, you're going to hear of wars. You're going to hear of rumors of wars. See to it that no one is alarmed. So just relax a little bit. Such things, they have to happen. But the end is still to come. World War One was advertised as the war to end all wars. It's a world war. And when we're done with this war, we're not going to have any more wars. Since World War I, we've had 250 major armed conflicts around the world. All you got to do is turn on CNN any night of the week, and you will see armed conflict every day somewhere in the world. And the Bible says that as we approach the end times, military conflict will increase. Now, here's another interesting detail if you want to write it down. Revelation chapter 9 adds a detail about military conflict. Uh, Revelation 9 indicates and suggests to us that at one point in time, there will be a military conflict, maybe even one battle. Imagine reading this a thousand years ago. One battle where one third of the world's population will be destroyed all at once. They'll be killed all at once. Imagine reading that when the only weapon that you have is a sword. Or a spear. Imagine reading it when they invented the musket. 
that that can't be true. A third of the world's going to die all at once in a war? I don't think so. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Except for our generation, we completely understand what that means. When the, with the advent of nuclear warfare, not only do we see that as possible, but even probable. Uh, we, we've all heard, we've all seen the movies. If they shoot their nuclear weapons at us, what are we going to do? We're going to shoot ours at them. Well, if Russia and America does that, that's a third of the world population just like that, gone. Not only is it possible, many think it's probable. If it gets to world to nuclear war, they're just going to people retaliate one against the one, another. So this will increase military conflict. And if Revelation 9 is correct, in one battle, in one war, one third of the world's population will be killed off all at the same time. Number four, the increase of famines and earthquakes. Now, we've always had people that were uh, didn't have enough food, and there's always been earthquakes. But, but it's interesting to look at some of the statistics. Let me show you the verse first. Jesus says there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pain. So uh, if your wife has had a baby or if you've had a baby, you know how that goes. You have a feeling that when it comes to eight and a half, mo- uh, eight and a half months, you know, okay, I'm getting close. And, and you're waiting for contractions, right? And the minute the contractions start, especially when they get kind of close together, you know, It's time to go to Kaiser. Baby's coming, right? The birth pains, the contractions give you the hint. It's about ready to happen. And what God says is, you know, in a way, the earth does the same thing and gives you hints that the end is about ready to come. And the hints that it gives is there will be increased famine and increased earthquakes. Now, this seems very subjective until you start looking at statistics. Let me show you what I mean. Let's put the first slide up there. 750 million people, you can just go online. This is apparent to everyone. 795 million people are malnourished around the world. In other words, they don't have enough food to live a healthy, active life. 12.9% of the population go to bed hungry. One in nine. You know, there's a word that we use in America that is used nowhere else in the world, maybe parts of Europe. Certainly it's not used in Africa, okay? Uh, It's the word leftovers. It's a very unique word to the Western world. We go out for Chinese, we go out for Mexican, we take the leftovers home, we put it in the fridge. Three days later, we're like, ah, that doesn't taste that good when you heat it up again, we throw it away. You know, you make spaghetti on Sunday night, you eat it on Monday night, but Tuesday, I don't want it. Tuesday, just throw it away. We all do that, I do that. And I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. It's just the opposite. Do you realize how fortunate we are? We got more food than we know what to do with. Not the rest of the world. Not the rest of the world. The United Nations estimates that over 41,000 people die annually simply because they lack food. Now, when you start to read the articles, there was the thought initially that it's the problem is food distribution. We have enough food in the world to feed everybody. It's just allocated in too many, not the right places. The more you read, now some of the some of the uh, opinion is changing, and they're saying that food production cannot and will not keep up with world's population. There just isn't enough food. I, I, I'm not smart enough to figure it out. I just want you to know. You start looking at these statistics, and it's pretty interesting. The next one is even more interesting. This comes from the World Almanac, and uh, so this is not a Christian group, and this is what they've determined. Um, Between the year 1000 and 1800, there were 21 major earthquakes. We live in the Bay Area. We know what a small earthquake is and what a major earthquake is, right? They had a specific Richter scale number that they worked out, but from those 800 years, there were 21 major earthquakes in the world. Between 1800 and 1900, so now much shorter, 100 years, there were 18 major earthquakes. 50 major earthquakes between 1900 and 1950, 93 major earthquakes between 1950 and 1991. The conclusion is there has been more major earthquakes in the last 30 years than in the previous 2,000 years combined. Now, I see this kind of stuff, and again, it just makes me go, hmm, maybe. I don't know. But you, it's hard to argue when you see these kinds of statistics, okay? Uh, number five is great tribulation. The great tribulation. Jesus said in verse 9, Matthew 24, you will be handed over, you will be persecuted, you will be put to death. When he says you, he literally means you, Christians, 
Okay, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. The Bible teaches that there will be a period of time of great persecution that will last seven years. Now, there is difference of opinion amongst very well respected Christians. Okay, it's not a fringe group as to whether or not the Christian community will have to go through the tribulation or not go through the tribulation. And there are several different opinions. Let me show you some of the different opinions. Let's put the next slide up there. Pre-tribulation. Pre means before. And there are uh, many Christians that believe that before the tribulation happens, the Christians will be taken out. Did you, do you guys remember the little bumper we watched just before the sermon? And people were floating up into the air. That is what is referred to as the rapture. And people who hold to that position believe in pre-trib. Before the tribulation, you will be raptured out and taken up into heaven. Okay, and then the seven year persecution will happen. Of course, when all the Christians disappear, there will be new people that become Christian. They're like, oh, my goodness, they were right. And they will be the ones that are persecuted. That's pre-trib. Mid-trib is no, we'll have to go through three and a half years and then we'll be taken out. Post-trib, the word post means after you'll have to go through the entire tribulation, all seven years. And then pan-trib is, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's all going to pan out in the end. So that you have the different position. That's just, I'm having fun with that one. Um, different people have different positions, right? I have a position. Are you curious what, what, which mine is? You guys want to know? I think the Bible teaches post-trib. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm, I hope it's the first one. I hope we float up into the air. And if we float up in the air, I will give you a high five. I will be glad that I was wrong. But everything I read in scripture, uh, we as Christians are not excluded from problems, from suffering, from persecution. In fact, quite the opposite. It, it is only when suffering comes about that you see the people who are truly committed to Christ. It's very interesting, right? It's easy in some places at some times to be a Christ follower. In quotation marks, easy. We don't live in certain parts of the world where even today people are being persecuted just because of their faith. And when I be persecuted, I literally mean put to death. Not in the Western world, but it's happening. So the great tribulation has to happen before the end times. Now, the great tribulation will be brought about by point number six. Let's put it up there. The Antichrist will appear. Okay, now we've seen Hollywood movies on the Antichrist and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to say much about it. We're going to spend an entire week just talking about that. Who's the Antichrist? Where is he going to come from? What is his agenda and what can you and I do about it? A whole week, right? It, for the moment, let me just say uh, one of the biggest mistakes people make when they think about the Antichrist is, is what you need to know about the Antichrist is initially he's going to be a super likable guy. Really? I mean, he will literally be the most popular politician and world leader we've ever had in history. And that's the point. He will be so popular everywhere in the world and we will willingly give him authority and power. And at some point in time, he'll switch and he'll change in terms of his perception of Christianity and in particular you and me. OK, we're going to spend a whole week on that. Point number seven is that the gospel will be preached to all people groups. Verse 14, uh, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. So when it says the whole world. The phrase there in Greek is all people groups, not every nation, literally, but people groups. OK, and then after the gospel is preached to everyone, after all people groups have at least had a chance to respond to Jesus, then then the end will come. Now, initially, again, remember when this is first written, think about a thousand years ago. You read this and you're like, how the heck is this ever going to happen? And then the printing press was created. And then thanks to Al Gore, the Internet was created. <laughs> and then and then, you know, everyone has one of these now. You can carry around a library of books on here. And here's what's it. You know, when I go to Africa, a lot of places I go in Africa and do teaching, they don't have clean water, but everyone has a smartphone. It's the weirdest thing. Right. Um, you know what theologians believe? Many theologians believe that this has already happened. Check. It doesn't mean that everyone has accepted Christ. It means that every people group around the world has had the opportunity to hear about Christ. I don't know. This one's much harder to measure. 
Uh, but it is a very important prophecy, very important uh, criteria and sign of the end times. Number eight is cataclysmic signs in the sky. The Bible says that this is going to happen. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its life. Stars will fall from the sky. Asteroids will hit the earth, okay? And heavenly bodies will be shaken. Um, there was a uh, TV company uh, trying to do an ad for how good their TV is and how HD their HD screen is. Uh, but to advertise it, they did a prank uh, down in South America. I want you to watch it, and then we'll talk. That is incredibly wrong and incredibly funny at the same time. Um, Something like that's going to happen. We're going to have things happen in the sky. And again, when you see it, the Bible says you'll understand kind of what's what's going on. Um, the next one, let's put it up there, is, uh, is Israel will become a nation again. I don't know if you realize this, but uh, after the second um, temple was burned to, to the ground in 70 A.D., Israel ceased existing as a country for all practical purposes. And for 2000 years, there was no country of Israel. And for the longest time, um, Bible students, church-going Christians, kind of like, what, what are we going to do with Jeremiah? Jeremiah 30 and 31, God says, I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. In other words, they will become a country again. Again, our generation doesn't realize how huge it was in May of 1944 when this happened. After World War II, what was previously Arab-occupied land was given to the Jews, and the state of Israel became a country again. From a prophetic standpoint, this was major, 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 big check mark when you start looking at signs and prophecies in the Scripture, okay? Uh, Israel has to be a country again. That has already happened, okay? The next one, according to Revelation 11, is global visual communication global visual communication must be a reality uh revelation chapter 11 which i have up for you a couple of verses speaks of two witnesses god will have two witnesses and in there in, in 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 that chapter it says that at some point in time the whole world will be able to see what the two witnesses are doing and saying now again imagine 1500 years reading that that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard the whole world seeing something at the same time and then in these particular verses, it tells that they will be killed and they won't be buried for two days. And the world will see all of that as well. Again, from our perspective, that's like, well, duh, everyone in the whole world watched the Olympics together on TV. We all have TVs. We all have smartphones, right? The minute the TV was invented, Revelation 11 and what is spoken of there was a major checkmark. Global visual communication. The entire world being able to see one event together at the same time. Major check mark. okay? Next one was Middle East peace. Middle East peace. Daniel chapter 9 says that in the end times, the Arabs and the Jews will come together and will be at peace. Now, I put one picture up there for you that was rather significant. Uh, I don't know if you remember uh, when this happened. Uh, president Jimmy Carter Probably the greatest legacy that he had as a president was that moment right there. What he did is he brought two individuals together, Anwar Sadat, prime minister of Egypt, together with Menachem Begin, prime minister of Israel. Arabs and Jews are sworn enemies. This was the first time two major heads of state, one from an Arabic country, Arab country, and one from, from Israel came together and made peace. This was huge, huge. Now, do we have peace in the Middle East as it's spoken of in Daniel 9, not as it's spoken of in Daniel 9? In Daniel 9, it says all of the Arab countries will be at peace with Israel. At this point in time, at least in form, Egypt is, okay? But more dominoes have to fall. So for the end to happen, we must have Middle East peace, okay? Um, the next one is rapid world travel. Uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Most Bible scholars believe that the phrase that I've highlighted to you, that many will run to and fro, that referred to rapid travel in the end times. Now, again, remember when this is written. The fastest way you can travel from point A to point B 
is a horse. In the end times, right, when Revelation is written or Daniel is written, that's the that's the only way you get to travel a horse. In the end times, people are going to travel fast, fast, fast. In fact, proclaimed Christian um, Sir Isaac Newton in the 17th century, speaking of this passage, said this. A new mode of travel shall be invented in the last days. I believe man will be able to travel at the amazing rate of 50 miles an hour, exclamation point. I see some of you drive 50 miles back out here when you're leaving church. You know, you shouldn't, right? By the way, he was highly criticized for that statement. Uh, proclaimed atheist, Voltaire, responded, Newton actually thinks that someday man will travel 50 miles an hour. That poor daughtered, he said. In other words, you idiot. You, you do know, know the sp- space travel. The space uh, shuttle travels at 20,000 miles an hour. Uh, I think we can check number 12 off. Okay. Uh, number 13, the world economy will become, we will have a world's economy and cashless society. Um, I, I don't know about you, um, but uh, in my wallet, I'm lucky if I have 20 bucks because I buy everything with this. I use my visa for almost everything. I might as well get the points. I'm pretty careful in how I use it. We are already in a cashless society. We already exist there. We are quickly moving to a world economy. Uh, And by world economy, some biblical scholars believe world currency. That's already happened in Europe. Um, but, But in Revelation 13, it goes beyond not having to use cash to make purchases. It literally speaks of you don't even have to carry your wallet. Heck, you could be on the beach in your bathing suit. You want to buy something, you'll be able to do it. How? Well, you, you do know that they are working on and they have technology now to figure out how to get this on human skin. Now, if they can do that, it could be very convenient, right? I don't, I don't need to have a wallet or a purse. I could just have something like that embedded into my skin and pay for things. And the Bible seems to suggest that there will be some sort of mark that will be placed on our body or on our skin in order for you to do purchases. And if you don't want to have some, I don't know if it's this. I don't know what it's going to be, to be honest with you. But it's interesting that this is already being spoken of. This is already being worked on. And initially, when this is suggested, the whole world will go, well, of course, that makes so much sense. There's not going to be theft anymore. No one can steal my wallet in the subway anymore because they they can't take whatever's embedded onto my skin. It eliminates all kinds of issues. It makes transactions a lot more simpler. What the Bible also tells us that eventually the Antichrist will gain control of this kind of technology. And then at some point in time, say, you will have to link it to your turning your back on Christianity. So it's not happening, but it's interesting how many of the pieces are starting to fall into place. And this technology is already available. Okay, Um, the next one is pollution of the seas and destruction of the forests. Verses 11, uh, 7 through 11 in Revelation 9, a third of the trees will be burned up. A third of the sea will be turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea have died or will die. Uh, again, you, you ever once in a while you hear of all, you know, people who are really into environment and the ozone layer and what they're doing, deforestation in the Amazon. And again, I can't keep up with all of it. But very quickly, I went online and did a Google search for pollution of the sea. And this is what I found. Every year, one million plus seabirds are killed by ocean pollution every year. 300 dolphins, uh, 300,000 dolphins and porpoises die each year as a result of becoming entangled in discarded fishing nets. 100,000 sea mammals are killed annually by pollution. And these same articles go on to say, guys, there are laws about what you can put into the sea or or not, but you do realize there are countries all over the world that are still throwing trash into the the ocean. They're still throwing sewer into the ocean. And, And surprisingly, they're throwing radioactive material into the ocean. And uh, again, I'm not reading Christian articles. I'm just people that are into, you know, uh, a good environment and healthy, clean environment. 
It's going in this direction. And what the Bible prophesies is that some point in time, the forests and the sea will be so polluted that a third of it will be destroyed. Okay. Um, This next one certainly hasn't happened. Daniel chapter nine says that the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt. It'll be the third temple. Now, um, if you've ever visited Israel, uh, I had a chance to do it when I was in college. Very interesting. I would highly encourage it if you can afford it to take a trip of the Holy Land. Uh, They give you a recreation of what they need to build according to Daniel chapter nine. And it looks like this. That is what the temple looked like in the times of Christ. And the Bible prophesies that before the end will come, that will need to be rebuilt and temple sacrifices will start up again. That's what the Bible says. One problem is that where the temple is supposed to be built, according to scripture, there's another building right now. And the people who own that building don't want to knock it down. You you know what it is, right? It's this right here. It's called the temple, uh, the Dome of the Rock, and it's a major holy place of Islam and of the Muslim world. Can, can you imagine if the Jewish authorities in, uh, in Jerusalem showed up with bulldozers there? Right? And so people are saying, this can never happen. This is never going to happen again. One of the, you, can get, you can get a little bit consumed in it, but if you're interested, go to Google and type in third temple they are working on it right now you want to know the suggestion they just came up with in the last 12 months this right here let's just put them right next to each other you don't have to knock down the mosque just put it right next to it every single month something else comes up because the jews in israel right now desperately want to build their temple again the bible says before the end times that has to happen, okay? Now, clearly, it hasn't, okay, which will become significant here in important. The last one, and I could go on and on, is that uh, European nations will once again unionize. Um, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 says that the old Roman Empire, okay, what's the Roman Empire? Europe will at one point in time be reunited into one allied force. Uh, that's happened. It's called the European Union. Uh, the big deal a couple months ago when England didn't want to be part of it again, but they, they still have the union. When I grew up in Spain, we use a currency called the peseta. The peseta doesn't exist anymore. The lira doesn't exist anymore. Oh, the French franc doesn't exist anymore. You know what they use? They know, use the euro. That's what they use. And when, if you've ever traveled in Europe, you have two lines. You have that flag right there, which represents the European Union, that line, and then everyone else. That has already happened, okay? So now here's the summary slide. You put the summary slide up there, and you look and you go, well, some of these have happened, right? Um, Like, for example, we have rapid travel, we have cashless society, global communication, Israel is a nation, check, check, check. But some of these I don't think have happened yet, have they? Unless I missed it, the Antichrist isn't here yet. We haven't gone through the tribulation. Certainly the temple hasn't been rebuilt, Right. So a lot of things clearly haven't happened. I I literally had someone doesn't go to church. Right. Don't go to church. But they know me from soccer. They asked me two weeks ago. Do you think we're close to the end? Do you think it could happen? You know, if you pushed me, do I think Jesus is going to come back this afternoon? I honestly don't. You know why? I, I don't think this all happened yet. I'm not guessing. I'm just looking at what the Bible says and says it's not all happened yet. Now, you also still have to have the biblical maturity to say that if he does come back this afternoon, no big deal. So what? I was wrong. Right now, personally, I have a little problem because God and I made a deal where he wouldn't come back until the Cubs win the World Series. But other than that, you know, right. So um, I guess I would let that one go. Right. Okay, so now I could go on and on and on and on. Uh, This is just meant to kind of pique your interest. It's meant to make you go, hmm. It's meant to make you think, "Ah, I didn't realize some of those things had been talked about in the Bible and have already happened. What do I do with this? There's four things that I want you to do, okay, according to Scripture. Here's the four things. Number one, 
be ready. Jesus said, you must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. How the heck, Dave, can you be ready for something you don't think is going to happen? How can you do that? You just told us you don't think he's going to come back this afternoon. How can you be ready? Answer the same way I get ready for a car accident. In about 10 minutes, when the sermon's done, I'm going to rush out of here, get in my car, drive to Alameda. My daughter and her team have a, have a game over there. And when I get in my car, do I think I'm going to get be in an accident this afternoon? I actually, I don't. You know why? I've never been in an accident. Right. And so the probability of me getting in an accident today, this afternoon, in my mind, is very, very, very low. Just like I think the probability of Jesus coming back this afternoon is very low. But how can I be ready for an accident? Well, I'm going to put my seatbelt on. Because if it happens, I want to be ready. I've paid up on my insurance because if it happens, I want to have something that covers my collision. See, you can be ready for something, even if you're not entirely sure it's going to happen right away. Question, are you ready if he does come back this week? Are you ready? The Bible says there's two ways to get ready. Number one, get saved. It's the most important step you need to take. And in a room this size, there's at least one person that knows about Jesus, but has never trusted Jesus. I got to tell you, here's what the Bible says. The minute Jesus comes back, there's no do-overs. That's it. Your decision has already been made. If you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, it's the first and the most important step to get ready. Number two, most of you, I know you personally, you've already done that step. You want to know what step number two is? Live righteously. You see, at some point in time, when the end comes, you will have an audit with God. And he will go through everything you did in life. How did you spend your time? How did you spend your money? What did you do with your life? What did you live for? Why did you say this and not that? He will go through everything. And he will want to know, did you live righteously? Are you striving to live righteously? Be ready. Get ready. I, you know what? If he comes back this afternoon, I'm ready. I've given my life to Christ, and my life isn't perfect. You know that. But I'm striving to live righteously. I'm trying to live for God. In the areas I know that I, I don't have it 100% right, I'm trying to change that. And so should you. Be ready. Get your seatbelt on, if we take that analogy. The second thing to encourage you to do is invest in eternity. Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You get 80 to 90 years to live here on earth. You get an eternity to live on the other side of life. You know, when I, as your pastor, I got to wrap up here. When I, as your pastor, challenge you, I want you to give financially to the building program and to bold. I want to encourage you to serve in children's ministries and youth ministries and worship ministries and prayer ministries, whatever it is. I want you to find a missionary that you love and support them and pray for them. What I'm trying to help you do is invest in eternity. That's what I'm trying to help you do. I will never apologize for challenging you to do that. Somehow or another, the Bible says that what we do here on earth influences to some extent how we get rewarded on the other side. You know, it's the it's the old joke, right, about two guys that end up at heaven at the same time. They're both buddies. And one of them gets to live in this great big mansion, this great big castle. And the other guy's like, oh, my goodness, I can't wait to see what I'm going to live in. And so the angel ushers him to his living place and takes him to a one bed shack. And the guy goes, why does my buddy get to live in a castle and I have to live in a one bedroom shack? And the angel says, I am so sorry. This is all we could build with what you sent on ahead. I don't know how it's going to work. Now, is there anything wrong with driving a nice car and taking a nice vacation? No, I'm not going to guilt you on that. But here's what I do know. The totality of your life, invest in eternity. Live or invest in what outlives you. Third thing, be encouraged. Be encouraged. First uh, Thessalonians four, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. And then it explains this and it explains that and it mentions this and it mentions that we're going to cover some of it in the next couple weeks. And then it ends and it says this. Therefore, everything we just talked about related to the end. 
encourage one another with these words. If after the four weeks, what I've done is scare you, I've not done my job. If after the four weeks, what I've done is confuse you, I've not done my job. The whole point, one of the main points of scripture, when you think about and reflect on the end, is to be encouraged. You know why? In the end, there's no more back pain. There's no more need for glasses. There's no more cancer. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. There's no more sadness. No more. And see, here's the thing. Many people here today are having a tough time in life or physically with their health. Be encouraged. It's not going to be like that forever. Be encouraged. The last thing is make sure you share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second Peter three, nine, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Oh, my goodness, God, it's been 2000 years since you left. What's taken you so long to come back? Why are you so slow? Well, it's not that he's slow. You see, instead, God is patient. He's patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. He wants everyone to get saved. If you've been part of the church for a long time, you've heard this story. I really don't like telling it because it's a personal story that hurts. But um, when I was in high school, maybe just turned 13, uh, for about a four or five month period, I had a dream. I would call it more a nightmare. Uh, in my dream, I was in heaven. And I know that didn't happen literally, so don't read into it. It was just a dream. But in my dream... Uh, there was a big line that went up to a desk and you would give your name to the person at the desk. And if your name was in a book, you could go up and to the right. And what I saw and heard up and to the right was was a lot of brightness and a party atmosphere. And I interpreted that to be heaven. OK, if your name wasn't in the book, you went slowly off to the left. It was dark. There weren't flames or anything like that, but I interpreted it to be eternal separation from God. And I was in the line and I got to the front and I told my name, oh, you can go up to the right. But instead of going up to the right, I waited and I waited because I saw a couple people in the line. I knew I saw my mom in my dream. And my mom got to the end and she said her name and your name is in the book. And she went up and to the right. Someone else I went to church with said their name. Their name is in the book. They went up and to the right. It's interesting because there was also someone in the line that I played sports against soccer. They went to one major school in town. I went to the other major school in time. I was the, the star center forward. They were the star central defender. Every year, twice a year, we would go head to head and battle. And I didn't know their name, but we had a respect, mutual respect for one another. And he came to the table and he gave his name and his name wasn't in the book. And he looked at me quizzically and then walked to the left. I stayed because in the line was my best friend. His name was Nicky Drader. He was a Canadian guy, uh, and I had lost contact with him by the time I had this dream. He had moved to Canada. Uh, I had moved to the States and then moved back to Spain. This was pre-Facebook and pre-all finding out and catching up with people. I didn't know where he was. Hadn't had contact with him. And he was in line, and he was the most fun guy I knew. He was funny, loved life, and he was my best friend. We used to hang out all week long. We would hang out Friday night. I'd go to his house or he'd come to my house. Saturday, we'd play soccer in the morning. Saturday afternoon, we'd go to movies together. There was one day and only one day we weren't together, Sunday. I went to church and he did not. And he gets to the front of the line and he says his name and his name isn't in the book. And so I say, check again. And his name isn't in the book. And in my dream, he takes about 10 steps to the left. And he turns around and he looks at me and he says, why did you never tell me? Why did you never tell me? I never had contact with him again, but it changed my approach 
to sharing the gospel, especially with the people I care about the most. Why haven't you told them? I don't know when the end's going to come. I don't know if it's going to come for everybody at the same time or something will happen to them and their end will come next week, next month because of an illness or a car crash or whatever. But this isn't games. There's a lot at stake. So here's our summary. Be ready. There's things you can do to get ready. Get ready. Don't be afraid of the end, but get ready. Number two, invest in eternity. It's well worth it. Invest everything you are into eternity. Be encouraged. Don't be scared about this. Don't be confused with this. Be encouraged. And the last thing, especially for those you care about, especially share the gospel with them. I get it. I know we don't have the right words. I know our palms get sweaty. I know sometimes we're afraid that they're going to look at us funny or what. I get it, but it's still worth trying. It's worth trying, okay? Let's stand. We'll close in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we're, uh, we're grateful for your word, and it's kind of interesting to study this, but help us have a balanced perspective on Scripture, on eschatology, on the end times. Um, help us not get too carried away with this, but, but help us dig dig deep into scripture and figure out what it says about prophecy and times and what we can do about it. Father, as interesting as this may be, remind us that there are uh, very practical things we can do because the end is coming at some point. Help us be encouraged. Remind us and challenge us to invest in eternity. Help us get ready and also help us share our faith. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, exists to help everyone take their next step closer to Jesus. Thanks again for listening.